Well, that's a good word. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are here at Central Campus in person, along with those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses. In our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we will now be focusing on the final uh, week of Jesus' life that culminated in his resurrection, an event that changed the world and which we're going to be celebrating in just five weeks. Now, this weekend, we're, we're going to begin our series by examining the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, also known as Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 21. And as you do, I just want to provide uh, a little bit of background. It is six days before Passover. In less than a week, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over Israel and beyond are making their way to Jerusalem to participate in the annual Passover feast. This year, however, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, even more pilgrims have come, perhaps over two million, because along with celebrating the Passover, they are looking forward to meeting Jesus. Word of his amazing miracles have spread like wildfire, the feeding of the 5,000, the restoration of sight, uh, the lame made to walk, and of course, just a few days earlier, raising Lazarus from the dead. Many can hardly wait to meet him. Well, Jesus and his disciples arrive at the Mount of Olives, where they see the city of Jerusalem and the magnificent Jewish temple. All around the city of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley, the pilgrims, they have set up their makeshift tents and parked their four-legged SUVs and RVs because there isn't room for all of them in the inn. There isn't room for all of them to stay in the city. Which brings us to our scripture lesson. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you now to stand and join me in reading our passage today. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did it as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the ta tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the events that took place here in the final few days of your life here on earth. We ask, Lord, that you would focus our minds. Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts. And Lord, you would give us the courage to do what we hear you calling us to do. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the scene depicted here is not all that unusual. It is something that man has done all the way down through history. We love to honor our heroes or those in high places of authority. Even in our day, we're reminded of the pre-COVID days where thousands would gather at our airports or line in the street uh, of our cities to get a glimpse of and to cheer heads of state or our Olympic and sports heroes. Now this was a very significant event in the life of Jesus because this is the first time in his earthly ministry that he allowed others to praise him publicly. Prior to this time, when people were healed by Jesus, often they just wanted to go and tell the world, which is understandable. And yet, time and time again, Jesus made a point of asking them not to do so, saying that his time had not yet come. But on this day, Jesus no longer constrained the praises of the people. He accepted it all for the time of his coronation as king had come. In fact, when children were praising Jesus in the temple courts, shouting Hosanna to the son of David, the religious leaders, they were some upset. And they really turned to Jesus, wanting him to stop it. And yet, as we read a moment ago, Jesus replied, have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Dr. Luke tells us that when the religious leaders asked him to stop the people from praising him, Jesus responded, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You see, on this day, Jesus was declaring, I am your king and I am your Lord. He was saying from this moment on, I welcome your praise and your worship. Now, a number of years ago, a young man who was exploring the Christian faith, he asked me, why does God want our worship? He said, is God so insecure that he needs to be constantly told how great he is? 
Well, no, I explained to him. The truth is God doesn't need our worship. We need to worship him. I said, you may not realize it, but you worship something or someone. We, we all do. We may worship ourselves or our spouse or our family, or we may worship our desire for a spouse or a family. We may worship our position at work, our money and our possessions, the approval of certain people, and or pleasure and living the good life. You worship whatever or whoever you treasure the most. In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, you worship whatever it is that you treasure. So here's the thing. God wants us to worship him, to treasure him above all else, because he knows if we worship anything or anyone other than him, we're going to give our lives to things that do not last, that are temporary. And we're going to discover at some point in time that they do not satisfy us or meet the deep needs of our soul. And when we come to the realization that we worshiped and we invested our life in the wrong things, that we actually invested our life in counterfeit gods, we're going to be incredibly miserable and despairing and more importantly, without hope. And that is why God calls us to worship him. He created us. And he knows that unless we make him the object of our highest affection, we will never know true fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, and peace in this life. The psalmist was spot on when he said, truly, my soul finds rest in God alone. Augustine put it this way, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, of course, all of this hinges on Jesus being God, Lord, and King as he claimed to be. I mean, anyone can make the claims that Jesus made. But you see, unlike anyone else, Jesus backed up his claims through living a sinless life, through his jaw-dropping miracles, and by rising from the dead. And that changes everything. That means that his claims are true. And that demands a response from us. You see, if Jesus isn't Lord and King, as he claimed to be, if he's just a man who lived a good life, died, was buried, and is still in the tomb, like every other religious leader, then we're actually wasting our time here today. But if Jesus is truly Messiah and Lord, as he claimed, when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday over 2,000 years ago, then he is not only worthy of our worship, but we actually face eternity without God if we dismiss or ignore him and give our lives to worshiping something or someone else. We must make up our minds about Jesus. And so the question is, who 
or what are you really worshiping today? You know, in John 4, 23, Jesus said this, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Jesus said, God is seeking true worshipers. And true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in truth is to worship according to the truth of who God is. It is to worship God for who he is rather than what he can do for us. To worship in spirit is to worship from the heart. It is to thank and to praise him. It is to follow and obey him because we want to rather than because we feel we have to. Well, as we're going to see in a moment, the events of Palm Sunday teach and illustrate for us what it means to worship God in truth and also in spirit. The kind of worship that pleases God. And it's also going to show us the degree to which Jesus is the object of our worship. The first thing we see here in the Palm Sunday narrative is that God-pleasing worship is God-centered. It focuses on God and his agenda rather than on our agenda. Now, if you'd been there that day observing the crowds praising Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem, you would have concluded that the people were very sincere. I mean, there were thousands who were cheering and clapping and crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. No one was handing out $100 bills behind the scenes to coerce them to go out and praise Jesus. No, they praised him willingly. They praised him from the heart. But as we also know that it wasn't even a week later, many of them would be crying out with equal passion, crucify him, crucify him. And I believe this is why in Dr. Luke's gospel that Jesus wept over the people of Jerusalem because their worship was misguided. It wasn't based on the truth of who he is. They cried Hosanna, which means save us, O king. But the savior they wanted was not someone who would save them from their sins, not someone who would reconcile them to God, not someone who would actually change the world by changing their hearts. No, they wanted someone who would deliver them militarily from Roman oppression. They weren't worshiping Jesus for who he is, but for what they believed he could do for them. In other words, they worshiped him in spirit only but not in truth. Now remember, most of the people who cheered him that day were Jews. For centuries, they waited with anticipation for the Messiah's return, for his coming. On that day, they envisioned the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a white horse and going to the temple and then declaring to them that he was their Messiah and promising them to deliver them from Roman oppression. Unfortunately, their personal agenda blinded them to the truth. Because when Jesus, the true Messiah, 
enter Jerusalem that day, he didn't follow the script that they had in mind. He entered the temple, yes, but as best as we can tell when you look at all of the four Gospels, on Palm Sunday, he entered the temple, looked around a bit, and then he left. Neither on Palm Sunday did he announce who he was or declare war against Rome. The next day is when some of those things happened. But even on the next day, instead of going after the Romans, he went after the Jewish religious leaders by cleansing the temple of their self-serving corruption, including the money changers and the merchants who were in cahoots with them. Furthermore, instead of coming in uh, to Jerusalem on a war horse, Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey colt. And he did so not because Hertz rent a horse was out of horses and he got downgraded. No, Jesus rode on a colt for a specific purpose. You see, in that day, the donkey was seen as an animal of peace. The horse, on the other hand, was seen as an animal of war. War heroes like Saul and like King David always rode in state on a horse. The donkey was used for peaceful purposes, like riding and bearing burdens and working in the field. Both the rich and the poor rode the donkey, indicating that even though the donkey was seen as lowly as Zechariah described in his prophecy here in verse 5, the donkey was also seen as a noble beast of burden. And so when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt of the donkey, he was still declaring that he was the Messiah. But his mission was a peaceful one. That his mission was not military, but rather spiritual in nature. But you see, the people of that day, they just didn't get it. They didn't see it. Because they worshiped Jesus for what they believed he could do for them rather than for who he is. Now, to be clear, it's, it's not wrong to come to Jesus for what he can do for us. I mean, the scriptures invite us to do so. The problem is, too many people are never interested uh, in anything more than this. And I've seen this many times down through the years. People aren't interested in knowing Jesus or becoming a friend of Jesus. All they want is for him to fix things in their life so they can get on with their lives and get on with their agenda. And when Jesus doesn't come through for them in the way that they want or in the time framework that they want, they get upset with him, they get angry at the church, and they walk away. In short, their worship is self-centered rather than God-centered. Friends, true worship is about God and about the truth of who God is. It's not about me. It's not about getting my needs met. It's not about my preferred style of worship. It's not about my personal tastes. In God-pleasing worship, we gather and encounter the presence of the living God and we declare his greatness, his goodness, and his glory with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we come together to worship, 
whether in person or online, we come not as consumers the way we might when we gather to take in the Philharmonic or a movie or a hockey game. We do not gather to be entertained or to rate how good the worship was or how good the sermon was. No, the focus isn't on us at all. It is on the Lord. We come to bring an offering of our praise, our adoration to our Lord. I mean, why do you think we call it a worship service? Worship is an act of service to our God. He is the focus. He is the object of our praise. The pastor is not the center. The worship leader, the musicians are not the center. And so the issue should never be, what did I get out of worship today? But what did the Lord receive from me in my heart? Now here's the thing. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God takes great delight in you. Now, I know that may shock some of you. If the Lord had said, I, you know, I, I endure you, you know, we'd understand that. But no, the scripture says he delights in us. And when we worship him authentically from the heart, we're going to find ourselves being blessed in return. This is not a one-way deal. You know, down through the years, when I found myself going through a dark night of the soul, sometimes... I just didn't feel like praying. I didn't feel like doing anything. All I could do was to sit and be still before him. And I can't tell you the number of times that I sensed God just reach out to me through his spirit in that time of stillness and remind me of the truth of who he is. That he loved me. That he was with me. And that he would never leave me or forsake me. And through my time of worship with him, he would bless me with his perspective and with his peace and a raw living hope that is near impossible to describe. And over the years, I've learned firsthand when we worship him from the heart in a real and a truthful way, God reaches out to us and blesses us in return, often in a profound and unexpected way. He meets us at our point of need. So first of all, God-pleasing worship is, is not self-centered worship. But God-centered worship is worship that's based on the truth of who God is. Secondly, God-pleasing worship is daily obedience. In verse 1, Jesus said to two of his disciples, go. Verse 6 tells us that they carried out the assignment that he gave them. They didn't rationalize it away. They didn't say, what did you say? They didn't ignore it. No, they went. In 1 Samuel 15, we read about King Saul's disobedience to God's plain instructions. And in an attempt to make up for his disobedience... Saul planned a great worship celebration, a great celebration in which he would sacrifice to the Lord and give him glory. And yet God responded this way. 
Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. You know, church, when we gather to worship, we can experience a spiritual high, worshiping and praising God with our spiritual palm branches, as it were. But it will be an empty offering to the Lord if there is habitual disobedience in our lives, if we constantly just refuse to do what he asks us to do. I mean, parents, if your children came up to you and said, oh, magnificent father and mother, you are more than worthy of our praise and adoration. Who other than God can compare to your loving kindness and boundless love for us? Your reputation exceeds all other parents. Now, if you heard your kids say something like that, you'd be thinking, okay, what did you wreck? Or you'd be thinking, what is it that you want? Now, if their praise was genuine, I mean, you'd be shocked, but pleased, I'm sure. However, if they did this little ritual of praise every morning, but consistently ignored you and refused to obey you the rest of the day, I suspect that after about three days, their praise would seem, it would seem flippant and hollow to you. And you'd tell them just to cut it out. Because to obey is better than to give meaningless praise. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, we are to seek the Lord's face always. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Even though God is blessed when we worship him in worship services like this, when we obey him and carry out what he calls us to do the rest of the week, when, when we carry out what he's asking us to do in our marriages, in our families, our, our community, our workplace, in and through our church, we are also worshiping him. You know, in Colossians 3.23, Paul writes, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Paul writes, if you are a Christ follower, then your earthly boss really isn't your real boss. No, God's the one that you're really working for. In other words, you're worshiping God through your work. And so when we leave for work on Monday morning and we go off to, to uh, or we go off to school or college or we volunteer in some way, you would be correct in saying to your loved ones as you walk out the door, see you later, I'm off to worship everything we do that reflects the character and the heart of Jesus that introduces others to Jesus and advances the mission and the redemptive purposes of Jesus is an act of worship when we're dependable when we treat others with respect when we are diligent and do our job well and with a Christ-like spirit, when we're humble 
and ethical and honest in our work, when we honor those in leadership over us, when we are kind and gracious and encouraging to our fellow workers, our fellow volunteers, or people in general, when we are willing to go the extra mile, we are worshiping God. When you consciously invite Jesus to do your day with you, and you are listening actively for his promptings throughout the day and saying yes to his assignments, when you are thanking him for his faithfulness and blessings and asking him for his guidance and help and praying for the person that he brings to your mind, you are actively worshiping our Lord. When you give to the poor, or to churches and other Christian agencies that minister to the poor, the marginalized, the hurting, those with special needs, the spiritually lost, you are worshiping the Lord. When you do your part to confront and put an end to injustice, the way Jesus did here in verse 12, when he drove out of the temple those who were making a huge profit on the backs of others, when you stand up to injustices like that, you are worshiping your Lord. Every time you willingly and with godly motives sacrifice your rights, your time, your money, your talents, your possessions, your freedom in order to impact someone directly or indirectly with the love and the truth of Jesus Christ, you are worshiping your Lord. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what God has done for you and for me, in light of that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The heart of true worship is surrender. Surrender and total dependence on the Lord. Nothing pleases God more than when we trust him and give ourselves to him completely. When we give our best to God and hold everything and everyone with an open hand. You see, genuine obedience flows from a right relationship with God, a relationship that is characterized by love. When you really love someone, you want to please them. It is never an issue of feeling like you have to please them or else. If you look at God as a tyrant with a club in his hand demanding obedience, then you really don't know him very well and you will not be worshiping him in spirit or in truth. In, first, in John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. Now that isn't a threat, you see. Sometimes people read that and think that's a threat. That is not a threat. It's just a statement of fact. If you love God, you will know God and understand his love and, and grace and why he's asking you to follow him. You'll realize that he cares for you. He has your best interests at heart in all things and he wants us to obey him, not to gain his favor necessarily, but so that it will go well with us. This is his heart for us. 
and why he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, Jesus is our greatest example of obedience. He saw the shadow of the cross among the palm branches. And yet he continued to trust his heavenly father, marching steadily forward to carry on the assignment that his heavenly father had called him to. The adoring crowds, the passing hosannas, did not deceive him or distract him. Neither did the awaiting cross, the coming pain, loneliness, and humiliation depress or defeat him for his trust was in his heavenly father and he was able to see beyond the suffering, beyond the cross to resurrection day when he would rise in victory. And friends, when we follow Jesus' example and we live in humble dependence on his enabling grace and refuse to allow either the hosannas and the accolades or the accusations and the slander or the hardships or the regrets of life to get our eyes off Jesus and his call, we will be living vessels of worship to God that will not only bless him, but will point people to the Jesus that we know and love. I'll close with this. In his book, The Unquenchable Worshipper, Matt Redman tells of a time in the life of their church when the fire that used to characterize their worship had somehow grown cold. And he began to notice people evaluating and rating worship leaders and worship teams, worship services and the preaching. And perhaps most disturbing, he sensed the focus of worship had shifted from exalting Jesus to either exalting or being critical of the worship itself. And so for a season, they decided to strip everything away and shut down the worship teams and go back to a very simple form of worship. And Matt says at the first, the meetings were, were just a bit awkward. There were long periods of silence, not much singing, but they prayed and they trusted. And in time, their church rediscovered the heart of true worship. And from that experience, Matt wrote a song that he entitled, the heart of worship. And some of the lyrics go like this. Lord, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it when it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. Friends, I trust that you see that worship is all-encompassing. It involves so much more than just waving a few spiritual palm branches in Jesus' direction or singing a few worship songs in a service like this. True worship involves all of who we are, all of what we say, and all of what we do in Jesus' name. Every moment of our lives, every attitude, every act, 
reflects who it is we really worship, whether our creator or the created, whether the eternal things of this life or the temporary lesser things in life, whether his agenda or our own. And so in closing, I just take us back to the question I asked near the beginning, and that is who or what is the object of your worship, the object of your highest affection? I noticed something when I was studying this passage that just stood out to me. When Jesus came the first time, he came on a colt of a donkey as the Prince of Peace. He came to be the sacrificial lamb, to take our place, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. He came to make a way for us through his amazing grace to be saved from God's wrath and judgment. He came so that we might become his friend and worship and live with him forever in heaven. Now here's the thing. There's a lot of talk these days. Is Jesus coming back soon? And people would like to know, and I want you to know people have been asking that question for a long time. The Bible tells us in Revelation 19, and this is what matters, that when Jesus comes again, which could be at any time, but when he comes again, he will come for a different purpose than the first time he came. He will not be riding a colt. No, he's going to be riding a white horse. And he will come to enact his judgment for the day of grace and salvation will be over when he comes again. And at that moment, every person on our planet, no matter who or what it is they worship, every person will realize that Jesus is God, Lord, and King, and that he is more than worthy of our worship. And right then and there, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And friend, there needs to be an urgency in us, not just now because of the pandemic. There just needs to be a sense of urgency about loving others to Jesus during this day. And to those of you who are still trying to make up your mind about Jesus, there is still time even right at this moment. You can turn to God by faith, receive his gift of grace. And I pray that you will humble yourself and reach out to Jesus and do so right now. Blessed, oh blessed, are those who truly worship him now in spirit and in truth. May it be so to the glory of God and in the life of everyone who has yet to surrender their lives to the Jesus that we know and love.
Would you just bow your heads for a moment? And take those two questions with you right now. Take them to the Lord. Lord, what are you saying to me? And what are you asking me to do about it, oh Lord?